Hello and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. I'm Mark William Lewis. Today we'll be speaking to three writers, all of whom have contributed text to this month's magazine. Shortly I'll be talking to Isabella Scott about her feature, Empire, Extinction and Ecstasy, in which she looks at US colonial history through the lens of artists such as the Vietnamese Danish Yan Vo and the writings of Chinese-American author Ling Ma. After that we'll speak to Gwen Burlington about her profile of the artist Emil Walsh, whose work interrogates sexual politics, queer rights, normative structures of power, and historical revisionism. But first, uh, we speak to Morgan Quaintance about his feature, Looking Back in Anger. Um, so yeah, Morgan, this, this piece is the first piece in a kind of history of the UK art world over the past decade, in which you say that the art world kind of currently exists in a state of denial, where it seems to favour political art or artwork with a moral or ethical dimension, but on a structural level, seems to reinforce those same power structures. Um, but this piece really outlines maybe how we got to this point by talking us through the first five years from uh, 2010 to 2015. Okay, so uh, the motivation for the piece really came from uh, my desire to describe a transition that I felt I'd, I'd um, lived through in terms of the span of my professional career. So from 2010 to 2020, and what I wanted to do was to find a way to describe a shift in like a sensibility or, or a shift in the sort of um, prevailing, uh, prevailing sort of ideas about judgment. I wanted to find a, you know, I wanted to find a way to describe that. So basically the way that I've done that is to talk about a shift from a, say, let's say an aesthetic sensibility slash regime to a um, ethical uh, sensibility slash regime. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is, um, let's say in the first part of the decade, uh, the idea was that um, judgment or um, the merits or faults of a, a given work, uh, project or artistic expression would be judged according to its, um, uh, its uh, aesthetic sophistication or lack of. And then later in the decade, the way that um, the merits or faults of a given project work or artistic expression are judged are now according to it's like a moral or ethical rectitude or like how, how far it projects a certain uh, political standpoint in relation to uh, specific issues that are being sort of dealt with in the art world. But suppose we can explore what those issues are a bit later. So really, this first part of the article, I'm just tracking a, a the first five years essentially was a kind of denial of um, the many uh, political shifts and um, developments um, that were taking place in the wider like social, cultural, cultural and economic um, uh, sphere in the UK. And uh, so, yeah, essentially, this article is, is, is talking about how that project of denial became in, it was, it was becoming increasingly untenable as like the detrimental effects of um, various legislative policies like stemming from austerity are being brought to bear on average citizens. So we begin in 2010 where there's like this, um, I talk about how the art world had a number of like issues or discourses and debates that were, were prevalent and you know maybe for some people they might not remember but I described the, the worst one being designers art. So essentially people making like furniture and, <laughs> and, and then, or, or else being interested in the archive or interested in, let's say, um, logical positivism or interested in like WG Sebald or interested in the ideas of de-schooling, you know, all these sort of hot theoretical topics um, that turned away from the social, cultural, political and economic realities that, that were taking place in the UK. And I, so, we begin there with, the, with, with this sort of um, hermetic, inward-looking concerns, and then we uh, end the article in uh, 2015, where things are just really exploding, and it's becoming increasingly more difficult to ignore, because basically the art world is, is just looking completely out of touch with um, the social, cultural, and economic realities of the UK. Um yeah, and you, you use the, um, the example of the British Arts Show 7, I think, as like, I guess, a useful marker in time as a distillation of like a, the, the obsession with like corporate, what you call it corporately aligned irony and like corporate imagery and um, as flat an yeah, image well, as you could get was, was considered like on trend, I guess, at that point. 
Um, yeah, I wanted to use the British Art Show 7 because British Art Show 7 is really a large-scale exhibition that's designed to take the pulse of practice. Mm. You know, it's, it's, the, the point is, is like, if you, if you, for, I think it's every five years, I think I'm right, but the idea is that if you just had your head in the sand for the past five years, then you could theoretically just turn up at British Art Show 7 and be completely informed about what's happening in the past five years, what's happening presently and what's going to happen in the future. And, you know, this is a moment two years after the global financial crisis of 2008. This is a moment after, you know, the huge student unrest in the city of London, where thousands of students were on the streets uh, uh, protesting against the 300% uh, increase in student fees from £3,000 a year to 9000 above. And this is also, I think, just after um, the condemned government, which is the, 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 the uh, portmanteau term that they use for the conservative Lib Dem coalition, that government came in and instituted a policy of austerity, right? So all of these big seismic cataclysmic events had happened. And what happened? We, well, the two curators turned in a British art show seven that looked at like um, the, the indecipherability of time. You know, like a really bizarre, inward-looking uh, curatorial thematic. And I, so that gave you a, an in, inclination of how the artwork was turning away. But also then I wanted to draw attention to the fact that, in a, in a way, British Art Show 7 was just doing what it has been doing since it began. I can't remember the exact date. I think it maybe was 1979 when the exhibition began. But all through that time, essentially, the exhibition has been this kind of hermetic concern which reflects really the desires and ideas of the given curator. And um, furthermore, it's been a complete monocultural uh, vehicle. So uh, that's why I wanted to use that because, you know, people could deny and say, well, you're just talking about s small exhibitions or, or one-off events. But this was a big, large-scale project that, had, that was, took place across multiple sites and involved big players in the art world. You also touch on... Um... Peckham specifically is like um, uh, that scene of, I guess, Arcadia Missa and Bold Tendencies. Uh, I guess like the cognitive dissonance of the hipster that you talk about where someone who's kind of trying to critique gentrification and complaining about gentrification is simultaneously like spearheading it at the same time, um, which seems to me like linked in with this um, notion of co-option and the art world trying to co-opt things which are... Um, independent i was wondering if you just yeah. talk a bit about that that kind of tension you know really so as i was saying i was trying to you know give a portrait of those five years and the different things that were happening within it uh, and, the, and sort of many examples of maybe contradictory or sort of hypocritical and duplicitous behaviors that were taking place you know i wanted to draw a distinction between the term we usually use for when people hold two contradicting ideas in mind at the same time which is cognitive dissonance, you know? Uh, when you say, um, I, I support um, homeless people, I wanna do my best, and then you walk past someone who's on the street and don't give them any money. How do you resolve the cognitive dissonance that arrives between your stated um, uh, commitment and your actual behavior? Well, there's gotta be some mental just gymnastics that takes place. But I was saying that's not really what was happening. What was happening is that what, what this, um, I think his name is Stanley Cohen, I don't have the book in front of me, but he wrote a book called States of Denial. And this is different to cognitive dissonance. It's that someone has access to reality. They can see the contradiction, but they just choose to ignore it. You know, they're not trying to resolve the contradiction. They're just like, you're just turning away from it. And I think, um, so using Arcadia Missa as an example, I mean, it's, for people who don't know, Arcadia Missa was a quote unquote project space that existed in Peckham for a while. Then it turned into a, um, a commercial gallery uh, then they eventually moved out of Peckham into the West End. And now they kind of specialise in, I suppose, uh, artists to favour a certain type of quote-unquote identity politics, or um, let's say uh, like uh, maybe gender or race-specific uh, um, issues, but not necessarily explicitly political, you know? So in a way, they, they, some of the artists on the roster create work that to a wealthy collector who has their finger in many uh, pies, uh, many of the sort of um, neoliberal pies that are doing harmful things to people um, in this country, 
wouldn't feel uh, necessarily targeted by any of the work that they're selling or any of the work that they're displaying, what they would do is they would learn the, like, the new pronouns or the new way to look at people or the new way to understand how um, you know, artists are, are thinking about their selves, you know, the, their selves being the kind of most important focus here. So you know, it's a kind of self-centered expression of, um, uh, of, uh, of moral rectitude as opposed to one that's looking out into society and saying what is happening legislatively speaking, what is happening in terms of how finance is moving throughout the world? How are galleries implicated? How am I implicated in this? And what can we do about it? Mm. I suppose when things become impossible to ignore towards the end of that midpoint of the decade with um, the demolishing of like social housing, and I was just wondering if you could talk about those two Art Angel commissions that um, you touch on. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do in the article is to is to draw this picture of 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 the kind of like i say these huge big situations and events that are affecting people you know like we had the explosion of food banks in this for the first five years and also the punitive like benefits sanctions that were being brought to bear on people who were disabled you know these are people who can't even get to a job but they're being sanctioned because you know they, they, they didn't make their, um, their sort of benefits review or they were late to their benefits review. And one of the things that kind of sits at the center of a lot of the issues, uh, problems that are facing people who are, let's say, let's well off in society was to do with housing. I mean, housing, having a roof over your head is the kind of, you know, even if we think of like, I, 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 I think it's Abraham, I'm gonna get his name wrong, but Maslow's hierarchy of needs you know, the first thing you need is food and shelter. And then from there, you can start thinking about who you are as an individual, how you want to express yourself and all those other things that we do within the art world. But for a great, great, great many people in the population, you know, they were losing their homes. And this is something that was happening in the thousands. You know, I think, I think it's plausible that it was in the tens of thousands, but unfortunately at the time of writing and since then, I haven't been able to do the research to get concrete figures but I do know it's definitely in the thousands. So I think, what was the point here? So I was trying to uh, bring attention to this huge thing that was affecting many, 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 many people and explaining that it was, it sat at the heart of lots and lots of different problems that was also affecting say younger artists or more established artists. So essentially if people can't afford to have places to live, they can't afford to have studios, which means they're going to get involved in more debt, which means it's going to be difficult for younger people to even do a degree or, you know, it, it just, it, it just snowballs. So um, I think the point I was trying to make by bringing attention to this was just to demonstrate how, again, sorry, I'm sort of repeating myself, was just to demonstrate how the art world was turning away. But, you know, I'm jumping ahead of myself to the second article, but the thing that made the art, the art world sort of attempt this kind of uh, this sea change and move to this ethical thing where everyone's like performing political engagement wasn't the housing crisis at all. You know, it's not finished. It's still no. going on. But um, I suppose was, I just meant in the instance of those particular works, like the seizure work and the, um, the what's it called? Haygate Pyramid, the Mike Nelson, yeah, like, which yeah, never... Yeah, thanks. That I was, got a bit lost. Yeah. No, 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 no. It's it's cool. It's just it seems like it, that was Art Angel like trying to look at something directly and just kind of yeah. completely like fudging it, just completely. Well, getting it wrong. I think art. There is. We we have to admit there's a very real trend of pretension in, within the art world, and I think curators and directors sit at an economic and social remove from normal citizens. They just do. If you earn sixty k plus. You know, or if you, so let's say most directors in the UK, I think last time I looked, earn 60K and above, yeah? Or if you're a senior curator, you're looking at like maybe 30 to 40K and above. And then if you're a director of, I don't know, one of these registered charities, quote unquote, like uh, Create or Open School East or um, Art Angel, you're also similarly going to be earning some decent wedge. And I think you're just, you know, you're, you're, you have this uh, 
kind of Olympian removed from what's happening on the ground. So I think it's going to be really hard for you, unless you're in the trenches, so to speak, to, to do something in relation to it that's not going to seem completely patronising. And also, like, you just don't have a grip on reality. So the piece was to take a floor of the Haygate estate and, like, turn it into a pyramid on the ground where the Haygate estate had been, and it basically just received yeah. like widespread condemnation and people just yeah i mean is, obviously yeah. because like yeah. the people on the haygate they have been like the, the expression that was used was when vast housing estates have been demolished and the citizens displaced the, you know the term that they used um which came out and i think a report penned by lord adonis in for for savills the estate agents was that tenants would be decanted you know like a like a fine wine you know and so i think i was trying to illustrate how in this first five years, it's almost like uh, we were getting these sort of proto-performance gestures, you know? So our angel, you just mentioned the, the Haygate Pyramid, but then earlier there was a, a piece by Roger Hyorns where he turned a flat, it was sort of crystallised an empty flat on an estate in around the Elephant and Castle. And, you know, like I was saying, that's not a neutral fact, you know? This is a city where hundreds if not thousands are homeless and to turn a potential dwelling place into a decorative object I think is is patronizing to an almost absurd degree mm. yeah and um, I suppose you, you kind of end the article with in the context of the article what's what feels like the kind of breaking point which is the um, the student protests in response to like um, cuts and just a broader marketization of, of higher education and um yeah and I, the court I mean, case was, with yeah the court case with csm taking their their own students to court over the uh, occupations and uh, your experience of that because you attended that court case and your experience of that and just feeling like i think you said you, you talk about that show that you saw at the ica afterwards um and just how the, the contrast of these two things happening at the same time and just the art world's continuing kind of seeming like indifference or imperviousness to, to what was happening. Um, yes. Uh, I, you know, uh, really, it was also me registering my own sort of breaking point that, yeah. that I just couldn't continue, you know, like I stopped really writing reviews and I stopped you know, I enjoy writing reviews, but I kind of didn't want to, in some ways, contribute to this illusion that everything was okay and that I'm just wandering around looking at artwork and that was okay, you know, it's fine. Like, I'd done it for five years and I felt like what needed to be analyzed was like more institutional behaviors as like organizations, but also the, the behaviors of individuals within those orgs. Now, like, the thing about ending it with the student protest is that this, one of the things that also happened to me at this time is that I, I have a radio show called Studio Visit where I interview artists. And one of the things I wanted to do was interview collectors. And I, I only did one interview because I just found it so distasteful. I interviewed this um, Italian uh, collector called uh, um, Valeria Napoleone. And, um, you know, she's a kind of interesting figure because she only collects work by women artists. So there's this kind of suggestion of a, of a, of a, a feminist agenda or a kind of liberatory project, you know, but when I went to her house, who answered the door, but a pinafore maid, you know, and I just thought this is a joke. We can't continue to pretend that it's all right for someone to be like, yeah, I'm making feminist art, but I've got a live-in maid who's going to be doing um, the housework for me. Or, I mean, why that's the disrespect of making someone wear a pinafore. I just couldn't believe it. And I think not only, you know, so it was that, but then it was being uh, in part of this uh, court case to seeing the students from CSM who were, protest who were in occupation being taken to court and seeing how the court treated them that day. And I, I think I was also around this time in a court case that involved Tate and the Art Not Oil group. And just to see, you know, it's funny, just to see how institutions behave and the muscle that they weld uh, wield, sorry, and they're like the, the lack of hesitancy in, in employing it in order to kind of push down any kind of insurgency. I think, you know, for me, it, it just, I felt like it just couldn't go on. And, um, and a lot of, a lot of people also felt like it couldn't go on. Uh, um, yeah. So I guess those are just a few examples, but there's many, many more. <laughs> yeah. 
It's funny that um, Art and Oil group Tate thing, we talked about that on another podcast. It was, uh, it came, that group came out of, like the Tate did like these workshops on art and activism. And uh, I can't remember the name of the artist running the workshop, but uh, he was basically like, well, why don't we look at Tate's sponsorship by BP? <laughs> like, and that's how mm. that group was formed. Mm. So it was literally formed out of, like the Tate trying to kind of do what you're talking about, like trying to look at an issue without really looking at it. But then it yeah. was basically turned back on them. And um, that's yeah. kind of interesting, yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, just to say that in writing this article, I'm not writing it so that institutions read it, develop a conscience and change. I've, I've said this many, many times before, and people will always find an excuse or try and tell me that I'm, I'm coming up with like a privileged perspective and blah, 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 blah. And I've said, the more you try to engage and reform with the, in these institutions and like the individuals who operate them. And when I say institutions, I'm talking about funders, I'm talking about magazines, I'm talking about galleries, public and private, you know, pe you know people who give out prizes, whatever. The more you engage in reform, the more they're just going to stall and long it out and nothing's going to change, you know? And the more people valorize the center, the more people are going to waste time trying to put on events at the Tate. Just put on your own event. You know, people should, like, I know it's difficult. I know there's not much money around. But the thing is, right, this past few years, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but everyone's had the same excuse. Ah, oh, you know, I can't do that. I'm not going to stop working for this organization because I can't make enough money and I need to survive. Okay, I'll just say one thing about that. Like, I've spoken to many writers and I've, I've issued the challenge and said, why do you write for, say, Art, Art Review or, or Freeze Magazine? Two magazines who who account in offshore jurisdictions. I've written about this before. And they say, well, I need to survive as a writer. Now, as a writer, you have a choice of where you put your, 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 your labor. It's not like if you stop writing for freeze, you're going to be broke. There's other places that you can write for. But I think what's, what drives people, I think, is self-interest. You know, We can't deny that self-interest and the possibility of furthering your career is something that's attracting people. But we can see the effects of that. You know, this past year, how many, I can't remember exactly how many people have been laid off or threatened with redundancy at the Tate, or how many people have been laid off or threatened with redundancy at the South Bank Centre. But what could artists do? They couldn't do anything. They had no power. You know, we've had tons and tons of um, open letters. And what do open letters do? Nothing. And you know, the problem is, because for years, people have been like, we can't do anything. I'm not going to stop, you know, working because I need the money and blah, 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 blah. And now we're at this situation where they can sack like 300 workers and just laugh in the face of the community. And then you pen an open letter as if anyone in an institution is going to be intimidated by you writing a letter that strongly words how disappointed you are in the actions that they've taken. Great. Yeah. Um, Cool. I, don't, I think we're running out of time and also we don't want to go too much into uh, the second article, which we're looking forward to reading. Um, but thanks so much, Morgan. Thanks for your time. It's all right. So, Isabella, your, your piece is about the US and its relationship with its territories or colonies. Um, and you start by talking about Chicxulub, which was a, an asteroid that hit Earth around 68 million years ago and is also the name of Dan Vo's, uh, Jan Vo's recent exhibition at White Cube, um, Bermondsey. Um, so maybe just talk about the significance of that exhibition um, in the broader context of your piece and um, the, the kind of metaphor of Chicxulub that you deploy throughout. Um, thanks. Yeah, so the piece which is on extinction and empire and Chicxulubs, it began with the show by the Danish Vietnamese artist Jan Vo which was on at the White Cube Bermondsey early this year. Um, and the piece also combines a reading of a novel by a Chinese-American writer called Ling Ma. And I kind of bring these two um, works of art together via this idea of visions of the end of the world, apocalypses or chicxulubs. Um, and I guess my thinking began um, in Yan Vo's show. Um, so I visited it when it opened in, de in December at the White Cube Bermondsey. Um, and I've seen quite a few of those shows and I, I, I generally really like his work. It has these themes of capitalism, sexuality, empire, colonialism. Um, and even so, um, I, I felt this show was a little different. Um, as you entered the windows of the kind of 
grand and ominous and moneyed white cube Bermondsey were blocked out. So the interior is quite dim. And inside there were these wood burning stoves in each room that were sort of cozy and ominous at once, if that's possible. And um, there were beds of ferns growing under artificial lights um, and a propped up dying apple tree. Um, and I read the show as a kind of bunker, a place, a kind of hideout um, from some kind of extinction event, which is what the Chicxulub refers to. Um, as you mentioned in your introduction, it's a, the name of an, an impact crater um, in North America, an asteroid that hit Earth 66 million years ago, causing this extinction event, um, which has had many kind of scientific and anthropological readings put on it, but it's generally understood to be the moment when the dinosaurs, these great, the greatest living creatures um, to uh, walk the earth were uh, made extinct. And there's a kind of romance almost around this narrative. Um, I've got into watching, there's quite a lot of kind of computer simulated um, versions of how chicks have occurred. Um, these waves a hundred meters high and this kind of like uh, quite dramatic, quite Hollywoodized um, Armageddon style um, destruction, um, which of course is all speculation and um, all kind of, um, sort of science and fiction uh, melding together. Um, and this was the name of um, Jan Vo's show. And in choosing the show, he was obviously positing this parafiction, if you will, which I kind of read into quite a lot, this idea of this extinction event. And the gallery is a kind of bunker where I guess part of my article is thinking about who the bunker's for and why the bunker's there and um, who might be taking shelter. Um, and I think what really struck me um, in the center of the show, in one of the main galleries, there's a big pile of uh, logs. And um, the pile of logs is really in the shape of the American flag. And it took me a moment to realize because some of the top layer was missing. And amongst these piles of woods, which are stacked um, to show kind of bark and sapwood to render the American flag, there's kind of 13 silver stars. And, and when I visited the show, maybe two weeks into its opening, some of the stars had already fallen to the floor because one of the logics of the show is that these bits of wood are taken from the, from the stack and they're used to put in these wood burning stoves that I mentioned. And kind of across the show, this flag shrinks and diminishes. And by the end of the show, which ends on quite a significant date, which is election night, which is now past the 2nd of November, the moment when Americans are heading to the polls, this flag kind of disappears. It's been burned, it's been incinerated, um, which has this aura of flag desecration and iconoclasm. Um, and so that was really my kind of reading of the show, which is how I begin the piece, um, looking at Jan Vo and this context of what he's um, kind of uh, critiquing or unpicking within the show. And this American flag, the diminishing American flag is quite symbolic as the kind of uh, center of, of, um, of, of what's being unpicked. And I guess I'm kind of running on, but there's a kind of history of flag desecration that's kind of really interesting that I was also thinking about alongside this show. Um, something Trump, this isn't in the piece, but something Trump said um, this July was like that this kind of incarceration um, sort of agenda he has. And one of these ideas, one of his promises before coming um, into his second term, which didn't happen, luckily, um, is that he had this idea that there was going to be um, legislation for imprisoning people who burn the American flag. So you'd go to jail for a year. And um, flag burning has this very incendiary history in America. Jan Vo is Danish Vietnamese and the Vietnamese flag was burnt at many protests. So that's obviously being echoed in the show. Um, and the flag, yeah, disappearing, diminishing. Um, it, it made me think about who is coming to the show. It's people that are coming to watch the flag burn. It's people that are, are kind of somehow um, on, the, on the end of some kind of American aggression. Um, Mm. And so that's what the Vogue show was. Perhaps you have another question. No, just the, just the, the Vogue, the Vogue, yeah. the, the Vogue show, you, you sort of describe it as like staging. So it's, it's kind of staging the death of the US in some way or, or giving um, a site like this bunker to, to this idea of um, an apocalyptic end of the US. But I was just wondering, like, is that to do with debunking the myth that the US is like this global peacekeeper, this like that its foreign policy is just about purveying like liberal democracy. And and then obviously the significance of that in the context of those personal biography, having to flee Vietnam um, and the inclusion of that photograph uh, of him as a child with his family at a Singaporean refugee camp. 
Um, yes, so I, I, I think something that's at, at, at the center of the show and also of the second book I mentioned, Lingmar's Severance, is this idea of this kind of critique of America's image of itself and the, the myth that America has of itself. And um, I think in kind of the Jan Vo context, um, he's thinking about this idea that, you know, this myth America has, American exceptionalism, sorry, exceptionalism, this myth America has that it is this purveyor of liberal democracy, that it's um, going around the world and, and spreading the, the good gospel of capitalism in the name of peace and profit. And of course, as we all know, using that age old method of warfare, um, what those show um, sort of suggests um, through various pieces you mentioned, like that photograph, is that that myth was never convincing to anyone um, outside of the US. It was only ever convincing to its citizens. And I mean, though his biography himself, he, as I said, is Danish Vietnamese and his family left South Vietnam in 1979 when Vo was four years old and they left on a homemade boat and were picked up by Danish tanker and rescued and taken to a um, refugee camp in Singapore before they eventually were expatriated to Denmark. And so this photograph you mentioned is something um, that appears on the bunker wall. And it's a photograph um, of Vo and his siblings taken at this refugee camp in 1979. Um, and it's a kind of another sort of Chicxulub. So if the one Chicxulub is, is this idea of like America, the center falling, the flag falling, which also links to my reading of Severance, which we can get onto in a moment. Um, there's also this idea of this spectacular Chicxulub that the meteor hitting North America, the Hollywood inaction of, um, of the end is actually like only really one spectacular and perhaps image-based kind of apocalypse. And really there are so many other temporary um, violent apocalypse is happening all around the world and, and one of the great aggressors is America and something I go on to mention in relation to Jan Vo is this book by Daniel um, Imerwar, I think is how you say his surname and he wrote this book called How to Hide an Empire and it's a really brilliant book I really recommend it it's um, Daniel Emerwar is an academic and he's looking at what he calls a pontalist empire. And it's really interesting. He's he's looking back at to, to, to see how America, um, you know, the, 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 the nation of America, this myth I mentioned of it as a purveyor of liberal democracy really was a myth. And, and as an academic, he begins by saying, you know, it's fascinating that this is something that hasn't really been looked at before. This kind of spread out empire that's called the greater United States. And it began with America acquiring these uninhabited islands across the 19th century, accumulates with the kind of Spanish American war and ends up with these acquisition of territories, whether it's the Philippines, whether it's um, Hawaii and, you know, by World War II, America had this really large, but very sort of sporadic, distilled, pontalist, camouflage, whatever kind of adjective you want to use, hidden empire. And fascinatingly, people within America didn't know about it. And I have a quote from him somewhere where he, you know, he, he, he writes about the way in which... Um, uh, it says here, a government report written during World War II, most people in the country, including educated people, know little or nothing about our overseas possession. People are surprised and they say, we don't have an empire, that's something foreigners, quote, have, that's something the British Empire has, it's not something America has. And so it's interesting to see the seeds of this myth that, that kind of has continued and I guess Jan Vo is debunking, but also I guess what Jan Vo is also speaking about is that this myth is like pushed a breaking point. And what's really happening, it's not that people like, Vo's family who uh, lived through the Vietnam War have um, are surprised. It's not like people in the Middle East who've like lived through the Gulf War or various other American aggressions are surprised by this, but it's American citizens itself. And I guess because America's at the center and because American culture is so dominant, there's a sense that this new apocalypse being staged in America is really I describe it in my article like America on the couch, you know, like asking whether it was this good um, capitalist religious empire that had done good or had it actually been a slave trading monster like all the other empires and I feel like this is kind of what those show begins to tip onto which is this kind of new um, analysis from within America um, and, yeah 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 just before we get into the kind of uh, navel gazing nature of uh, like American sort of America's obsession with its own demise um, I just, you've touched on it a few times, but the, the novel by Ling Ma, Severance, um, which came out in 2018 and is, is like sort of hauntingly prescient, like about um, a Chinese a virus that comes from China. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe just tell us about, about that novel. 
and uh, how it fits in. Yeah, um, thank you. I love this novel. I really recommend it. It comes with a huge trigger warning because reading it um, as the pandemic continues to unfold is is really um, it's quite terrifying and exciting at the same time, I guess. Um, so this, yeah, book written in 2018, so two years before the pandemic, and it's by a Chinese-American writer who actually came from the province in China where the bird flu epidemic emerged in 2003. Um, and in this story, it's a, I, I have to say this book was in my mind as I walked around the, the Vaux show, which is really why I tried to put them together because mm. I felt there was this kind of... Um, uh, Mars descriptions of this the fall of New York um, through this this fever, which I'll explain in a moment, was was really this kind of parafiction that that, that those Chicxulub evoked to my mind. Um, and also Mars book is a kind of act of iconoclasm, which is the same as as kind of though burning this flag. It felt they both take great pleasure and glee in watching America fall. Um, so in 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 Mars book, um, its protagonist is a kind of um, millennial Chinese American millennial who's living in New York, working in New York, and kind of working in this like, deep capitalist industry. Um, and she kind of narrates this, this rumor of this fever that no one takes seriously. It's called Shen Fever, it comes from China, has these kind of like sort of symptoms that look very much like a cold that eventually escalate. And by the time um, people notice, they've kind of you know, spread it around the city. And there's a sense in the book that um, it, it, it kind of captures so well this kind of complacency. Um, which I think kind of haunted some of the early days of um, the corona pandemic, particularly um, in Europe and America. Um, and I was thinking about these two books really in the context of iconoclasm. And what I began to think about um, in terms of both um, Vaux Show and Mars book was this idea of um, at once there's a gleeful nature, as I mentioned, in, in dismantling the center, in watching the center fall. And Mars' descriptions of New York's fall are kind of so compelling of this kind of um, total collapse of the city, the subways filled with swirling candy sticks. And, and you have um, this exodus from the city that kind of collapses and elevators falling apart and this sense of um, this kind of sparkling city that no one thought could fall. Um, becomes kind of destroyed by this pandemic but 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 also I think what's interesting in a wider sense is is what it means for there to be so many visions of the center falling where the center is the U.S. or is America and this idea that you know um, so often the end of the world means the end of America and I guess something that's kind of fascinating is even if you watch America fall, even if you watch it destroyed by an asteroid, a meteorite, a dinosaur, like whatever the kind of film premise is, you are still looking at America. And I guess I was sort of writing, you know, dreams of the center falling, sort of affirm where the center is. And it seems to me like this kind of last chapter of American dominance or narcissism or putting itself at the center, um, this obsession with the center is that we need to sort of see it happen on the level of the image in America for it to have this kind of currency and, and what we're doing as we stage America's death, where we're pinpointing the center and the gaze, I suppose. Um, yeah. Yeah. And do you, you kind of end the piece by, by arguing that that tendency is again surrounding the coverage or was again surrounding the coverage of the, the US election, that this was like the death of democracy and um, the, that it's kind of another episode in this ongoing apocalyptic drama of US's obsession with its own, yeah, with its own demise, which like you say, just kind of reinforces its position at the center of the world. So yeah, just finally, I guess, kind of, could you just characterize that that kind of coverage surrounding the US election? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it was it was a great cue for me because that Jan Vos show ended on the second of November, so it was really cue to the election. But the election itself is something I wanted to kind of write about anyway, because it was sort of as I was writing and finishing the piece that that sort of riveting uh, six days of television uh, was occurring, um, and I, I I really found it fascinating to watch because there was a sense that you know in the run up there were people ringing the bell, ringing the alarm bell, as I wrote in the piece, the end of democracy, whatever the outcome, this doomsday. I guess it's a kind of a trope in 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 in, in the art world, as in politics, this, this this endism, this calling the end, the death of whatever it is, the death of the author, death mm -hmm. of America. But um, but th but th there was a real kind of a alarm sounding, and then um, 
it was kind of fascinating because I mean, Fox News and CNN, their ratings were higher than ever. It was like, if, 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 if this is the apocalypse, it's also a box office hit. And this idea that like the apocalypse is excellent television. And also the apocalypse is occurring on the level of rhetoric or on the level of the image, at least in America. You know, the apocalypse in South Vietnam is one thing, this kind of, I call it the apocalypse, but this kind of, this idea of the South Vietnam War, this destruction of livelihood. But in, in terms of American democracy, I mean, I, I felt like this election was a mix of a game show kind of combined with the juiciest reality TV with Trump at the center, all cameras on him. He is the center, he's the star. And I, guess there seems a kind of interesting it captures that same paradox of, of like what is the spectacle you're watching and um and what is it affirming and um you know at, at, at the end of the, the i felt the the, the 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 way this election was characterized was, was was really this kind of great tv spectacle that like affirmed um affirmed the center really and in the end you know was a box office hit mm. okay great I think that's, uh, that's all we've got time for, but thanks so much, Isabella, for coming on. All right, thanks. Uh, just before we speak to Gwen, just a reminder that uh, all of these articles that we're discussing are available in the latest print issue of Art Monthly magazine. And there is a special offer for Resonance listeners, which is available at artmonthly.co.uk slash resonance offer. It includes a free digital subscription, which will give you access to the entire Art Monthly back catalogue dating back to 1976. When you've written about the artist, uh, writer and researcher, Imer Walsh, um, maybe you could just tell us how you came to, write, to want to write about their, their practice. Yeah, um, Imer Walsh, um, yeah, so she's an, they're an Irish artist um, kind of based in Longford. And um, I write about kind of three of their projects. Um, the most recent one is The Land Question. And I suppose I'm kind of interested in their practice because um, they kind of use the framework of um, sexual knowledge as a kind of route into political understanding. Um, and in particular for the land question, that's um, directly to do with housing. And housing has been kind of at the heart of kind of economic and political debate in Ireland for kind of what feels like a long time now, like maybe since 2012 or just after the... Um, Kind of recession kind of housing prices kind of have skyrocketed since then and it's kind of a sustaining and kind of worsening issue which kind of um, affects like the majority of Irish people and I suppose it's also it was interesting writing about this because um, for Art Monthly which is in a UK context because it's very specifically Irish but I don't know I was also reading um, that book Where the Other Half Lives but edited by Sarah Glynn and um, the kind of issues that Emer talks about, which is based in kind of Irish colonial history in the 1870s and 1880s, is kind of very similar to what, um, you know, London, you know, London kind of housing in the 1880s as well. Like, for example, um, I think they tried to demolish slums then, you know, because of like unhabitable living conditions, which I suppose it's like basically similar issues um, which have been dealt with. Um, and I'm, I suppose what underpins uh, Imer Walsh's work, uh, or the land question in particular, is how kind of that neoliberal kind of agenda of, you know, housing is no longer a home for living in, but a source of profit, um, and how that has kind of come to be. And I suppose Imer kind of interrogates kind of the colonial history of that. And it's very specifically, um, goes into the land wars, which was a period of between like 1878 and 1881. Um, uh, that are probably a period of history that was kind of been overlooked, and um, which Emer kind of um, says in, in the, the, the video talk, or the, yeah, it is an artist talk, so I, I should say that as well. Like it's a kind of, um, it's an educational, um, or not educational as such, but it's, 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 it's not a, it's a lecture. It's not kind of like a, there's no kind of narrative in that sense. And um, I suppose that, that, that underpins their work as well, that they're also, a lot of their kind of projects, they're, they're seen as an educator. Um, and I think, yeah, I suppose what's interesting about that time in history as well was that um, I think it was like this figure, like 800 families owned 50% of the land. So it was just a hugely divided, um, country and um, 
also that like the majority of people were in kind of abject poverty kind of living on the bread line which is why i was kind of comparing comparing it to london at the time i suppose as well there's a lot of kind of um resentment um i think in irish history of for like irish people against the uk because of you know it's seen as the irish were left to starve but when instead of like an it's not really the Ireland, Ireland versus England. It's more kind of, you know, the kind of wealthy elite kind of like versus the kind of like extreme poor. And um, I suppose um, in Eames work, kind of, they kind of like in, interrogate this really. And um, they uh, kind of use it um, like, and I suppose it's the, the beginning of it, that they kind of use that kind of funny kind of the, the sexual logistics of like, you know, how can I have sex outdoors and the kind of, um, you know, imp impediments to that. And they kind of lay out these kind of three conditions. Um, but I suppose by describing the many laws or kind of, um, which effectively like, uh, which effectively kind of prevent or discourage someone from like having public sex, it kind of demonstrates that sexuality is kind of contingent on access to private property. I was going to ask about how, how Walsh kind of connects um, the housing crisis and, um, the inequality around housing and land ownership in Ireland directly to sexual politics and the libidinal economy, um, so to speak. Yeah. It kind of yeah, also kind of harps back to their um, research that they did at the Van Abbey Museum. So um, they initiated, um, it was part of the DDM Practices Research Programme, and they initiated the Department of Sexual Revolution Studies, which kind of interrogated sexual revolution. And um, through that, they kind of ran a series of workshops. Um, and they, I suppose specifically the ones that I mentioned in, in the piece that I wrote, they kind of interrogate um, or investigate, I suppose, um, kind of kink and um, how, it was, I suppose it was also done in, in with the Design Academy. So they were talking, looking at kind of how these kind of like um, physical spaces, like if you're living in shared shared living conditions with other people, for example. Um, in one workshop, they it was almost like a role play where they assigned people and they asked them to write down the emotions that they felt, for example, when they either overheard people having sex or witnessed sex or if they were overheard or witnessed having sex and like which kind of were like anger, disgust, you know, some people said turned on, you know, they were kind of and they were supposed to kind of like make a kind of embodied kind of understanding of you know that sense of you know on being on both sides of the wall i suppose and i think this kind of directly relates to i suppose people of emo walsh's generation you know who are kind of going to be living in this kind of longer period of of renting really and and shared living and um, and I, like i suppose their motivation behind the work was i uh, and it, from a kind of personal experience of being um, or finding themselves and continues to this day to find themselves in a kind of sex or not sexually precarious, but like housing precarious kind of situation where um, they they find it difficult to to find pl places to live where they their kind of sexual desires are accepted or their sexuality is. Um, and I suppose it, yeah, I'm kind of um, interested in how yeah. These are kind of they, they use this kind of to to in, to like love use it as a kind of framework for politics, which is kind of bizarre, really, when you kind of look at it at a on a very kind of um, uh, or kind of initially like I suppose even like the land question, the title of it kind of is bizarre in itself. But yeah, I kind of find them interesting. Um, I suppose as well, um, they're kind of interest is kind of based on this idea of like the social progress that Ireland um, kind of lays claim to. Like it's been a massive, you know, Ireland is part of like a massive social change in the past few years. Um, and I mentioned some of the things in 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 the piece, you know, like the... Um, yeah, the, the quote from Imar um, is really interesting. And I was going to ask you about kind of really your opinion on... on uh, well, the quote when they say uh, the increasing respectability of queerness is instrumentalized by our socially progressive, fiscally conservative government for international PR and to put a shiny gloss over its own policies of economic violence. Yeah, I suppose what they're saying is that 
the kind of lived reality is different to what we say uh, or to to what yeah they claim um and it is it definitely yeah it does feel that way because on the one hand you know um you know i think as well they call like the the, the social progress actually feeds into a kind of national supremacist self-image i think that was like a quote from one of their um one of their pieces of writing and um it's it's it feels like ireland is very like contradicting in in many ways like it always feels like there's two steps forward and one steps back so uh, or one step back there's you know the abortion referendum in ireland was like an extremely kind of emotional um debate that kind of talks the whole country where it was all anyone could talk about and it was very personal to everyone and i also think that these issues that Emma Watts deals with like marriage sexual politics um, reproductive rights like um all of these things are kind of like very personal to many people it's like you know people's opinion on them are like kind of deeply entrenched in like their beliefs um, and like a lot of like how they were raised so I suppose in Ireland it's like it's funny that it it's interesting an example of a nation that has come full circle like because it's quick to, to condemn um the religious fundamentalism um which kind of very recently was part of its own social fabric you know and you know arguably still is um like you know personally even you know for example when you look at how they interrogate marriage in in greta and the i know why women cry at weddings which is the radio play but like people like i went like i personally went to about like eight weddings like two years ago like none of them were religious but it's it's like you you kind of think that you're kind of part of a nation that's being kind of liberated from like all these kind of normal rites of passage you know of you know having kids and getting married when it's still very much um most people are like a part of you know part of that kind of society or for example it was only in 2018 that um the baptism barrier was removed which meant that you know 90 percent of Ireland's um, schools have a Catholic ethos and like in order to go to them you would have to be baptized and that was only removed in 2018 and like a lot of people before that would um they would get their kids baptized just to um you know get them into schools but it, yeah it feels like even if people aren't religious or they don't go to mass these things are still very much like a part of their lives like I, you know, received a text the other day to say a prayer and light a candle for like a friend's ill baby. But it's kind of, I can't imagine like my friends or anyone that I know actually doing it, like actually going to, like, you know, it's, it's not really a part of their, their lives in any kind of active way. Mm. It's just sort of what you do or. Yeah, it's kind of still yeah. part of the social fabric that it's yeah. kind of, yeah, it's very hard to kind of, yeah, because it's like historically such a part of, the way everyone lives it's we kind of feel liberated but you know it's we don't really live that differently to mm. do it like we did like before like 20 30 years ago yeah um i was just gonna you just touched on it there um the the piece about margaret cousins um yeah. so i wondering if maybe you could just tell us about uh, margaret cousins and how uh Imar kind of weaves together their own identity uh, and experiences with those of cousins yeah um, um, so in that radio play work uh, i know why women cry at weddings it's called from 2019 yeah. yeah um so yeah the radio play was performed at king boyle house in roscommon um which i think was the house of greta cousins and um they made a publication that kind of combined um research by um i think it's doc I, i'm gonna pronounce this very badly and i do apologize i think it's dr um duty um chakravarti i'm gonna say that's what it is um but also and also a kind of um a text by uh Emer's grandmother Maisie gately uh, which kind of tells the story of kind of uh it's just an almost like an anecdotal story of um marriage in um pre in ireland pre-1950s and um the story of um Margaret Cousins was, she was born, or born in 1878 in Roscommon and um, 
was kind of dedicated to the cause of suffrage um, and also in India to like um, freedom of expression and um, the cause of nationalism. And the radio play is a dialogue between the historical side of text of texts by Margaret Cousins and Emer Walsh. And Emer kind of quote said like with the unfair um, benefit of hindsight and um, you know and prejudices of youth, like they were able to kind of put themselves in conversation with these kind of historical this kind of historical figure who has very different kind of views of marriage um, to Emer. And um, I suppose um, Cousins is an interesting figure because um, they had like their personal and political life, uh, marriage was kind of a force that shaped her and which she in turn contributed to shaping and kind of reforming. And, you know, she had a kind of unconventional partnership with James Cousins, her husband. Um, she also kind of advocated for women's, for women's choice when to have children and for the abolition of um, child marriage in India. And um, I suppose the marriage with James Cousins was like, um, when he proposed to her, she was quoted for um, crying with disappointment. And the radio play kind of starts after this moment like that she's been proposed to. Um, and that's when it kind of engage, like they, they begin a dialogue just after that moment. Mm. Um, you kind of conclude, um, conclude your piece by talking about humor and i guess uh, it's hard sometimes when you're having conversations like this to kind of get that across that the work is actually quite really quite funny and there's a lot of um there's a lot of humor involved and um Imar kind of assumes a lot of different contradictory characters and plays yeah. around a lot with that and um but i guess I, I wanted to ask i guess is that a means of um positioning all this really is like a means of resistance um and kind of humor and assuming these different characters is a kind of radical mode of resisting, I suppose, kind of power structures and. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I think artists are kind of scared to have their work described as funny, like that it might undermine it or, you know, take away kind of sincerity of it or the seriousness of it. Um, which I think what is the opposite with Emo Watch's work. Um, I, I felt, that um, it really kind of made it quite effective because, and it, it's seen throughout their their practice where they kind of propose kind of ridiculous and kind of hilarious things and they kind of act, I suppose, like as a disruptor in many cases. Um, and through, I think, that humor, they get away with a lot and, and it's kind of a way of um, kind of letting the viewer in and, um, I, I definitely advocate for more funny artwork. <laughs> but, um, uh, I, I, yeah, I think it's very, and I also think if the, the land question was a straight um, historical kind of lecture, it, it just wouldn't be as effective or, like you say, it is a kind of means as like a means of resistance in its kind of um, delivery, I think. And um, Yeah, and I suppose the absurdity of the whole proposition to start with that like, yeah. this is all about just finding somewhere quiet to have sex <laughs> yeah yeah exactly or like mm. when they talk about the kind of ridiculous conditions like or mm. a like getting away from a tyrannical farmer it's yeah it's mm. it's funny and i suppose i i what i really found interesting was how they use kind of um sex as like a kind of act like an act that kind of needs privacy which is essentially what they're trying to say i think or what the reading that i got from it was that like you know like any Anything that dem demands privacy, like we all have a right to have private, like to have privacy, um, which I think is the issue with um, kind of like an endemic housing crisis is that like so many people are um, being kind of refused that. And um, yeah, also, I suppose like sexuality, like it's quite a contentious issue that like lawmakers have the right to um, uh, the right to kind of say what is acceptable or what isn't acceptable when they're talking about your sexual desires or sexuality. Mm. It's funny, law in, in, or in general has become this massive thing in 
contemporary visual arts in Ireland, like a lot of the work that is being made is in response to laws that they are kind of advocating for change or, um, yeah, I suppose as well, there's, um, and I think this probably has to do with the contradictive nature of, you know, how Ireland sees itself as, you know, socially progressive now when it's in reality, sometimes it, it doesn't feel that way, that maybe that these laws just take a long time to be kind of entrenched in the social fabric of the people. Mm. Um, that you feel that as soon as it's changed, it's like, oh, like everyone's going to go get abortions now and get married. But, you know, it's it's kind of, it's like a, lot, a much, I feel like I realize now that laws are kind of like, it's a much longer process, you know, to kind of be subsumed into the culture. Okay, that's all we've got time for. Thanks to Gwen, Morgan and Isabella for coming on the show. And thanks as always to Resonance for hosting us. Um, you can also find this throughout monthly um, in a podcast format wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks.